Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you feel like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. When it comes to style and luxury, eBay gets it. They're making sure the things you love are checked by experts. And not just any experts, specialised experts. Real people who love this stuff with real, hands-on authentication experience. So when you see that shiny blue check mark that says Authenticity Guarantee, shop with confidence. Every inch, stitch, sole and logo is verified authentic through a detailed inspection. That's how you know that eBay's got your back. Because when you finally step into those sneakers, put on that watch, get your real gold glow up, swing that handbag over your shoulder or step out in that streetwear, you'll realise that feeling is unlike any other. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You know that's the sound of another sale on your online Shopify store. But did you know Shopify powers selling in person too? That's right. Shopify is the sound of selling everywhere. Online, in-store, on social media, and beyond. Shopify POS is your command center for your retail store. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify has everything you need to sell in person. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Plus, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 help is there to support your success every step of the way. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash BOF, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash BOF to take your retail business to the next level today. Shopify.com slash BOF. 
I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of the Business of Fashion, and welcome to Drive, BOF's new podcast series delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. This week, I sit down with Alexandre Matusi, founder of the Parisian menswear label Ami, which means friend in French. I was like working for big houses, Givenchy, Marc Jacobs, and as a customer, I couldn't afford the designs I was doing. It's completely disconnected with me. And I'm a designer, so I should be the one who could wear or right. afford these designs. People in fashion can't afford the clothes they're working on. This is an amazing experience to be an entrepreneur, to build like a company, to express yourself, because I'm free today, actually. This is the best thing ever. So here's my conversation with Alexandra Matusi to learn what it really takes to build a global fashion business from scratch. Well, good morning, Alexandra Matsusi. Welcome to London. Bonjour, Imran. How are you? I'm very good, thank you. How was the train ride? Actually good, yes. It was raining in Paris all night long and... Uh, the train so very the Parisians, they always complain and they say that the weather in London is bad, but today it's clear here and it's raining in Paris. But actually, I think statistically it's raining in like more in Paris than in London. I think that's right. Yeah, for some reason, all the Parisians are always saying to me, oh, it's... But it, dri yeah, it drives us kind of, yeah. kind of crazy right yeah. now. Well, you use the word drive and that's what our, our, our theme of our conversation is today. It's for this new series of conversations I'm having with global fashion entrepreneurs and what drives them. And I wanted to start today by talking to you a little bit about way before you started your business and a little bit about where you grew up. And so you were born in Gisors. Tell us about Gisors. <laughs> Gisors is like a very, very small city in Normandy, but like kind of close off of Paris, like 75 kilometers from Paris. It was like a countryside. It's like really the countryside, the fields, the cows. Uh, I had the chance to, yes, to grow, to grow up like in a, in like close to the forest and everything, which is, I feel like very, very lucky today when I'm, you know, I'm living in Paris for the last 20 years. Yeah. And And, and sometimes, yes, like nature and countryside, like uh, I miss a lot of, of this. How did how did growing up in Gisors shape you as a person? Do you think now that 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 I think about all of this, I think that it helped me to to build my imagination. You know, when you don't have so many things to do, um, I've been like very creative from the very beginning. I used to. To, to sketch, to dance, to sing, to do all that things in my little bedroom and with my parents like waiting for me during the dinner because I was doing something else. And, and it was for sure the beginning of, you know, of something. I didn't know what, but I knew from the really beginning that I needed to express myself through a, a creative, you know, point of view. Mm -hmm. One of the things that you did early on was ballet. And I didn't, I didn't know that until exactly. actually today. Why ballet? Like, what drew you, especially if you're in the countryside, how did you get into ballet? I woke up in the morning. I was four years old. I was, I remember, was with my mother alone with, uh, at home and uh, watching the TV during a lunchtime, actually. I remember, like, every every. You remember that I, moment? Exactly, that moment. And, and, and at the TV was, like... Um, Where, sorry, like um, Swan Lake? Yes, Le Lac des Cines, of course. A ballet dancing yeah. thing. And I was like completely like watching this with like, I was like, wow, what's happening there? And I asked to my mother, like showing like with my, my finger, like I want to do this. And she said to me, 
okay, this is dance, do you know what it is? And she started to explain to me and she said, you're going to ask to your father tonight because we were in the countryside, you know, in 1984. So... And he came back home uh, by night after work and we had this conversation and I said, I want to dance. And he said, okay, dance. If you want to dance, dance. And this is my first, I think, my first big thing because from the moment my parents allow me to do whatever I wanted to do, that, that, that really helped me to, to, to feel very comfortable with my choices and with who I was at this time. And... I started to do like a, yes, ballet dance course. And I did in that Gisor. in Gisor, in a little, you know, dance, uh, dance class with like uh, only girls, actually. I was the only boy. I was a kind of Billy Elliot. I was dancing all the time from waking up to going to bed, like at school and everything. And I was like completely in my world. I was like listening to music, classical music. I asked my parents every weekend to go to Paris, to go to the opera, just to watch the opera, not going inside, actually, just walking around the opera. And sometimes we get in and I was completely into that. Patrick Dupont was a dancer at this time. I was like fan of him. So, And from 4 to 14 years old, I did dance till the, the contest to, to become a petit rat at the Opéra de Paris. And actually, I was turning 14 years old, the beginning of the, actually the teenagehood, and it, it was like kind of frightening because I was like completely, you know, protected with my, with my girls in the countryside. Yeah. But from the moment I went to the contest, we were like 500 kids from all around the, fr- the, the, the country yeah. who joining the contest. And was, I was, there like, a, was there a stigma for a boy... In the countryside. Yes. How did that feel? Actually, to be honest, I don't even remember that kind of things because for sure I was like, I can say bullied, yeah. but but it didn't didn't hurt me at all. Because, did it make you stronger? Mm, actually, yeah, it, make me, it, it really made me stronger because I felt so passionate and I felt like so in love into what I was doing. I felt like protected in a way by, by the passion, by the, by the art of dancing because I knew... What I was trying to do with dancing, it was trying to, to express for sure something from the bottom of my heart, but to be technically doing something, you know, we dance is about technique and emotions. And I felt I was like, you know, building and something um, from, from, from really deep inside me. So, so I, f- I felt very strong about that. But at 14 years old, when I arrived at this contest with all these kids around ready to kill to succeed, and I didn't actually manage the competition at this time. I, I was actually not aware about the competition because in, with my girls in this little you know, dance class, there was no competition. It was just about loving, love, about love to dance, you know. And, and actually, I, I was with my mother uh, this day and she said, good luck. And I was there with all these kids, like ready to push you in the in the stairs. Really, like, really, really, like it was you know, really competitive. Very, very comp- competitive. You know, like, um, and I said, oh my god, I don't want to. I don't want this. I, I love dancing, but I don't want to make it. You know, something a competition with the others. And actually, into fashion, I have the same feelings. I don't put myself into competition. Right. You know, I don't want everything. Everybody wants to put you in competition from the moment there is a new brand or someone a little bit hotter makes a little bit more buzz and everything and I feel very comfortable with myself saying you know we all have our different stories to live make it happen in a very nice way don't try to hurt people make it like you know 
make, make it like, yes, I feel uh, the best as possible you can do, but don't try to compete yourself with people because I feel like it doesn't help you so much. Right. Gives you more stress, I think. So is that why you stopped ballet? Yeah, stopped like the day after. I went to that contest. I missed it like completely, but I was like aware that I was missing it because I didn't want to make it happen, actually. And back to back to home and I said, OK, I want to do something else. And in the same times, I was sketching, dancing, cutting fabrics to make my own costumes and everything. So the next step was like more into creative. And I've been lucky enough for my with my mother to find a school. Uh, close to Paris that uh, at, at this time it was called like um, un bac F12 which was like actually 24 hours like a baccalauréat like a baccalauréat yes yeah. but it was like a specific technical uh, session for people who wants to create and to do some art so it was really really different and I, I was like super super happy to do this for three years and then I After after I was graduated from this baccalauréat, I arrived in Paris in 1998, uh, where I studied the school called uh, Duperret, okay. which is like a public fashion school. And so what was it like there at Duperret? It was actually, again, the end of an area and the beginning of a new one, because we didn't have computers yet yeah. at this time. I think the guys get computers in 2000 I look very old saying this but <laughs> this is crazy because we we've been the last degree without computers no we did everything by by ourselves like with like, copies photocopying sketching putting you know words on on papers and just cut them and and, and stick them on, on on things no no computer no anything like that so it was again a moment where we had the chance to to really work on creativity and imagination Amazing. And what did they teach you in fashion school at that time about business? Anything about business? Anything about business. Nothing. It was really the beginning of starting to talk about collection plan, for example, or cost of fabrics. But it was not really that, you know, that period where teachers try to to say to us that you need to design something, it's going to be sold, it's going to be, you know, we didn't talk about celebrities, we didn't talk about social media for sure, we didn't talk about, we just talk about creativity, just be creative and try to make something, you know, and that's all. So mm -hmm. so actually it was it was funny because I, I, I had the chance to to work very, very early because before the end of my, of my degree, I started at Dior, Jerome, where Edith Neiman was working there. I didn't work with him, actually, because I was working on a second line called 30 Avenue Montaigne. Mm -hmm. But he was, you know, the creative director, and it was the new thing. It was amazing, and I really loved it. Actually, I fitted very well the clothes at this time. So we had the chance to go to the private sales, and I actually offered to myself, I afforded myself my first jacket in, when I was 21 years old. It was like a Jerome by Edith Neiman. It was like perfect. I felt like a prince in it. Yeah. And, and this time, I was like, working on a collection and I learned everything there actually the, the the reality of the business and again 20 years ago when we're talking about menswear it was not you know not so relevant compared yeah. to why did today. you choose menswear and not womenswear instinct I had my first internship was in 1998 it was at Jose Levy and then I did a, some, something at Cheruti it was menswear and then Dior was like um, again an opportunity it was menswear So I've always been like, you know, evolved. I always evolved in, a, in menswear business. And I'm happy with that. I'm very happy with that because it's, it's a different 
you know, different field from from movement as well. Mm-hmm. So when you when you were working at Dior, at some point you decided you wanted to do your own brand. Yeah. yeah. And you called it Ami. So tell me why you decided to start your brand and why did you call it Ami? So the first time it was 2002, just yeah. leaving from Dior, and I met someone there. He said to me, "If you want to do something, I can help you." So he gave me a bit of money. I built a little company and I started to make t-shirts and shirts. And um, I called it Ami already there because this is my, you know, the A from Alexander, the M from Matthew C and the last letter of my name. And actually it has been a signature for a while. From when I was a kid, I, I saw that the three letters of my name, if I put them together, it makes Ami. And Ami means friend in French. Okay. And for me, it was the beginning of something. I didn't know really what could be that name later, but I felt it was already powerful enough to make it like, you know, something I think relevant or different. I don't know how to say it. And I liked, again, maybe this is the thing that I always say because I'm, I, I'm kind of very humble. I felt very, it felt very weird for me to put my name like Alexandre Matusi, you know. Right. It's like, you know, I think when you are a writer or something, when you are a singer, you can put your name. But again, I just felt like for me, I don't want to be the, you know, the the voice of it. Like I just want to do my designs and everything. Right. And actually when I started again in 2010, 2011, it was like for sure the same feeling. I felt like I mean it's to be the the name of the brand, and I'm the designer of the right. brand and the founder and everything. But for me, so we're I'd... rushing ahead a bit though, <laughs> because the first iteration of Ami, it didn't work in the end. You had to close it. Actually, no, I stopped it by myself. Because, so why did you stop? Because I've been asked to 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 do, to come at Givenchy to work uh, as a menswear designer. I was doing this for two years. I didn't gain money. I didn't lose money. I just tried. I was, it was by myself. Just, it was just going all by yourself. All by myself. No, no team. No team. All by myself. Going to Limoges in the in the center of France to do my shirts and going to Troyes uh, to do my t-shirts. And I have two little companies I was working with, factories. Sorry, and and we had like I had like stores in New York. I had store in Italy. I had like few accounts, but I was selling maybe eight hundred shirts per season, which was not bad. At this time, you know, but it was like not growing because I was not, you know, ready for it and I was not organized to make it happen and to make it grow. And so instead of trying to make it grow, you decided to go back. Someone actually called me and said, Oswald Boteng is coming to Paris to be the creative director of Menswear Givenchy. And there was a casting. He organized a casting, which is crazy. So he really organized a casting. Like, for his designers. For designers. So he asked, and actually the human resources asked everywhere in Paris, designers who want to come to see and to see if they can do the casting. I say casting, it's not a casting, but it was like a casting. Right. And the first day, I remember, we all arrived at Givenchy. We were like maybe 50 people. And Oswald was there, like, you know, like a singer, like someone who's going to make a show. Yeah, he's like a rock star. He's like a rock star. Yeah. And he said, do you want to be part of my team? Like this, you know. And we were like this, and we just tried to make a little, you know, a little portfolio or something for one week after. And it was like a kind of, you know, we've been 50, then we've been 30, we've been 10, 5, and I've been, and I was like 
maybe the less expensive of everyone. How old were you at this I time? I was 24. No, 23. I was yeah. 23. And did Oswald ever tell you why he chose you from all those people? Yeah, because I saw him a few weeks ago. Uh, a few months ago, I was in Marrakesh on vacation with my mother for my birthday. And he was in the same hotel. By accident. By accident. And so what did he tell you? He said to me, you had the kind of energy, uh, enthusiasm, and you felt, I felt like completely out of this world, you know. I was very fresh, I don't know what to say, yeah. because I was, I was an experience in a way. I was yeah. just like, you know, I've been at this casting, you know, not believing in I'm going to make it happen, you know. Right. And we've been three and two and one. The last day, I remember, I was there in the elevator, coming up, seeing him, last conversation, going back, taking my bus, and someone called me and said, can you come back? He wants to see you again. And I've been chosen, you know. <laughs> the and I chosen one. Like, chosen one. So, <laughs> and, I've, I, and I started to work the, the, the day after. Oh, wow. Yeah, the 13th February of 2000. And so what was it like to work with Oswald? Because he comes from Savile Row, right? It was, it was I can say, because I, I actually told him, I think it was a strange position for him because anybody expected him to do this job. Givenchy was kind of, you know, in a trouble at this time. You know, Alexander McQueen left. Um, Julian McDonald was, was leaving. It was, you know, anything really happened at this time before Ricardo arrived, actually. The same year or the, the year after. I think he arrived in 2005. So there was expectations, but in the same time, we didn't know where we were going, where we were going. And uh, Oswald, I can say is a very amazing human being. He was acting like a father, more than a designer. He didn't try. He didn't know anything about how Paris fashion industry was working. So he really gave us the keys, you know. We were two, three young people like me, 23, 24 years old, trying to do our best to make a collection. Even if we didn't did well, we did it. And yeah. didn't work actually so much. People didn't react so well into that kind of designs and everything but the experience was amazing because it gave me that chance and I will be always uh, you know uh, grateful about that because a lot of people say bad things about him but I I can say this is the one who gave me my chance so yeah. I respect that and yeah. uh, and he was like a fantastic you know entertainer we yeah. had like lots of fun with him yeah and he was very crazy and at the same time he was super nice and when I say crazy, because it was like kind of hysterical, but yeah. it was like a super nice and with deep and 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 strong values. Yeah. Some, I think yeah. it's someone I respect. So when Oswald left, did you stay when Ricardo yes. arrived? We stay. Actually, we had two years with any creative direction. So there was nobody. There was like Thomas Merikoski. Yeah. I mean, you know him, who's doing Alto yeah. uh, label today. Yeah. We are together with another guy and a collection director, some interns, they were, and Marco Gobetti were there with us. Yeah. And I loved Marco Gobetti. This period was amazing because Marco was there, was seated with us, trying to make a collection. Yeah. And actually, we, we tried to do our best to, to make a collection Gosh, again. that must have been so daunting, right? So it's, Oswald leaves and, and... And we've been there in the yeah. studio, two, three kids, 50, 25 years old. With one of the biggest brands in Paris. Amazing. It couldn't happen today, you know yeah. what I mean? It was like, 14 years ago and yeah. it was possible to make it this way but this is like very artisanal huh? mm -hmm. crazy but we learned so much at this time yeah what very, did you learn we learned actually how to I, I can say because this is the way I still do it now it's to build a collection yeah build a collection but does that mean that means that you need to create a range of clothes 
because I'm really methodic and very organized about the way that things needs to be articulated together. Of course, you put your idea of the collection, the creative side of it. But I think in menswear, you need to very well balance the, the range of clothes because men's needs a coat. They need a jacket. They need a shirt. They need a pair of jeans. They need a pair of trousers. They need a trainers or a pair of boots. They need a tie. They need a knitwear. They don't need so many things, you know. They have... So and it needs to be perfect, right? And it needs to be perfect. That idea of a classic. The idea of a classic. So, yeah. so we we work on this. We work of, on price points because price pricing it was really important at this time. Even if we try to make it luxurious, so the pricing of fabrics, the cost of fabrication, the way we organize things, the way we put a fabric close to another, the way production team helped us to make it happen, and then I was like lucky enough to to be in that little house because Givenchy was a really little house. Marco Gobetti was really nice with us, inviting us to all the meetings. And even if there was a meeting, I didn't need to be there. He said, come, come, come with me. And I was like part of communication meetings and marketing, even marketing. So in a way, Givenchy was your fashion school. Yes, it was definitely my fashion school. I stayed four years and a half there. Yeah. And then Ricardo came in. What was that like? It was fantastic. Because people didn't know Ricardo at that time. I mean, Ricardo is like a huge name now, but at the time he was a completely unknown. Unknown. We heard some rumors about uh, Sofia Kokosolaki. Yeah. And we heard some rumors about another guy, I don't even remember the name, and Ricardo Tichy, and we were actually checking on style.com. I remember he was presenting maybe his second collection in Milano, yeah. was like super dark and, and you know, it was like in, in, a, in a church or something like that. And we said, oh my God, this is crazy. So we were like super curious. And then he came in yeah, and he was 29 years old. So yeah. he was kind of young, yeah. didn't know anyone. He was super shy, like yeah. super shy. And we start to yeah to 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 get close with him. He was really into. He wanted to change the house for sure. I'm, I'm thinking now that he wanted to change the world too. But <laughs> but but um, yeah, and we did the first, and I did actually the first collection, the, his first menswear collection with him, and then I left. Okay. And I was like super honest with him and with the team, and I said, I'm not going to be able to give you what you need with your idea of. This creative, I'm not gonna be. I can make a jacket, I can make a shirt, I can help you to find a good fabric. It was like maybe too high fashion for me. How did moment. you know that? Okay, uh, I knew, I know, I know where I can be very good, and I know my Your weaknesses exactly, yeah. exactly. And I prefer to be honest, I don't want to to work on my weaknesses, I prefer to work on my strength. And That's actually, a really when I, good lesson, work on your strengths. For sure, because even when I hire someone today, when I have an interview with someone in my team, I said, what's your strength, what's your weakness? Yeah. And if he says to me, I don't like to do technical sketching, I will say you will never do technical sketching in Ami. I prefer him to concentrate on something he feels comfortable, strong, and where I can really help and, and, and bring something in, into, into the, the team in the company. So I said to Ricardo, I'm not going to be a good designer for you. Yeah. There is lots of people who's going to be like really good on what you want and you expect from a, a, a designer. So I left to Mark Jacobs and I left between. It was like a strange deal because I was supposed to move to New York it was beginning September 2008, so oh, beginning of the you know, economic the financial crisis, crisis, financial crisis. 
And I was supposed to move to New York, but the production of the menswear directed by Joe McKenna at this time was done at Staff International. Um, in Italy. In Italy, uh, close to Venezia. Yeah. And the team was in Paris because Mark was often there for Louis Vuitton. So it was like I was there between New York, Italy and Paris. And actually, I didn't, I didn't like it. I was like, I learned a lot. Why didn't you like it? Because, to be honest, I can say it now, I was expecting, because, you know, I had actually the choice, the choice because LVMH... Uh, said to me, we can give you two jobs. First one is like Mar Jacobs, New York, or Loewe in Madrid. And I did not actually know Madrid at this time, and Loewe was... Yeah, Loewe wasn't in a strong place no. at the time. And, you know, and, yeah, 2008, Mark Jacob was, like, super, super cool. So, right. for sure, I, I, I did that choice. And, actually, I felt, as I, I was thinking, like, at this time, I thought, sorry, that it will be, like, a very, very cool company. But everyone seems so straight there, very okay. stressed, like, yeah. a lot of tension. Uh, my Parisian team was fun. But the New York team was like kind of, you felt the pressure inside the, the house. And actually my first day in New York, and this is the funny thing because I arrived there my first day in New York after doing lots of interviews with uh, Joe McKenna and lots of people from Mark Jacobs. Uh, I arrived in the elevator and I said, hello, like super happy to be here. <laughs> and I was with maybe five or six people and anyone answered to me. No one did. No one. So I thought they didn't hear me. So I started doing, I say, hello, and anybody answered. And this is the beginning of my year at Mark Jacobs. So okay. I, make, I met fantastic people. I had a great experience working with Joe McKenna was amazing. Legend. Yeah, amazing. Um, I worked with a guy called Carla Berg, who used to be the creative director there for menswear. And it was fantastic. So, but it was a perfect year for me to say to myself, okay, maybe I'm ready to do my own thing. This podcast is delivered by DHL as the logistics partner of many of fashion's biggest and most prestigious businesses. DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Now present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL has decades of expertise in logistics and is the world's leading partner for the fashion, jewelry and lifestyle industries, delivering over 1 billion parcels each year. Drawing on its entrepreneurial expertise, DHL offers tailored logistics solutions suitable for any fashion business. From emerging designers to established global mega brands, to independent stores, e-commerce giants and direct-to-consumer startups. For more information about DHL, visit DHL.com. First of all, you called it Ami again, as you again, mentioned yeah. earlier. but. With all of the experience that you had at Givenchy and Marc Jacobs, and, um, what did you decide you were going to do differently this time? Like, what, what was going to be the foundational principles of this new brand? Because by the time you created Ami, like the fashion business had completely changed. There was a very competitive menswear market. There was um, a much bigger visibility of the fashion industry by this point. The internet had taken off. You know, social media was just starting. Like, what were your ideas for how you were going to create the brand the second time around? So I was like, 
leaving my checkups and I said to myself, okay, let's try something. I was like working for big houses, Givenchy, Marc Jacobs, and I was like, you know, I couldn't afford, as a, as a customer, I couldn't afford the designs I was doing. Hmm. So this is the starting point. I said to myself, okay, I'm doing like a 2,000 2, euros like sweater in cashmere. I'm sketching and designing like a 1,000 euros jacket. I'm, you know what I mean? Or it was super creative or super expensive and super luxurious. And I said, okay, it's completely disconnected with me. And I'm a designer. So I should be the one who could wear or right. afford these designs. So that's a funny point because you can see and still today, I'm pretty sure that people in fashion can't afford the clothes they're working on. That's crazy. That's right? crazy. Okay. And I try to imagine myself as a cook, you know, doing my cook in a kitchen. I couldn't afford the cook I was cooking. You know, the cooking. food you were making. Uh, yeah. The food I was making. So it's impossible. If I was a singer, it means I couldn't like the music I was doing, you know. And this disconnection, like, made, made me, dro drove me kind of crazy, you know. And all my friends and, you know, the family around and everyone, absurd fashion, always in this kind of way, saying, but who's going to wear that? Who's right. going to buy this? So yeah. we felt at this time, again... Even in fashion, fashion has been like democratized in a way, still disconnected about the main idea of it. And for me, fashion, first of all, is about dressing people. I want to dress myself because I love fashion. I want to, you know, buy things and, and I want to, to, you know, make, make a good style of myself. And my friends are the same. We have sometimes uh, the opportunity to, to afford clothes at a good good price but not at this level of pricing or not at this end of you know the, the creativity on the luxury thing so the beginning was let's start again from the beginning and let's try to keep all my experience from the luxurious brands I was working for and trying to make it like more realistic more accessible more accessible and at this time actually in 2010 there was not so many brands like this. Mm -hmm. You have the mass market, as we call it, like mm -hmm. with H&M and Zara, we did like, a, we did like a fantastic job, you know, to dress people all around the world. And there was still the designers, as we call still today. And in the middle, there was not that kind of, as we call it in France, well, in France, all around the world, contemporary. Yeah. And, and the contemporary the, business really started in the US. But exactly. in Europe, there wasn't very much. No. In Europe, there was like, nothing really you know strong or I don't know and and again the story around Ami it's all about that Ami means friend again so it's dressing myself and my friends let's try all these Parisian guys all around trying to you know finding the right sweater the nice trousers with a touch of something yeah. which is like a good fabric good cut very simple details a look mm -hmm. but in a, in in a kind of a story, I don't want to say storytelling because there is, it's, it was not a storytelling, but trying to put ourselves in, you know, in clothes that makes you feel cool and you didn't cut harm to, to buy yeah. them. So it's really cool because you had, you know, I, whenever I talk to young designers thinking about setting up their own business, 
I always say you should spend a lot of time thinking about your customer and what's your like real value proposition. Like why is someone going to buy your clothes mm. or your brand over another brand? But the other thing is that actually you are also super creative, right? From your early age, you know, from from being a uh, a young a young boy who was interested in ballet, like how are you going to channel your creativity in a commercial brand? So, as I told you before, I wanted to first of all trying to design a wardrobe, yeah, a range of clothes I love, and trying to keep that classics, and say let's do a camel coat, let's do a navy sweater, like a grey flannel suit a white shirt, a blue Oxford shirt, you know, all yeah. these little things which are not so different from what was over there around, but to to united all these things together in one, you know, universe, universe yeah. felt very new, actually. Yeah. So, so the creativity comes from, for sure, my, my way to choose the fabrics and the colors and working on the proportions, which is for me the most important things. How folds like a, a jacket, uh, the length of a sleeve, like the length of the coat and everything, the details in the buttons. Not trying too hard too, because sometimes in menswear, you are tempted to add always something because you can feel like very anxious just to deliver like a two-button camel coat. Mm -hmm. And I'm actually, I'm not, frustrated about this you know some designers always want to bring something bring bring like a zip like a scratch like a I feel okay if I just do like a beautiful two buttons camel coat it's already like hard to do and actually it didn't exist anywhere else yeah you could you couldn't afford like a 600 euros kind of coat anywhere else right. so so that's where I started to understand so that there is maybe like a big opportunity yeah. commercial wise and in the same times I just trying to tell my story you know my mm -hmm. story my friends being connecting with people and actually it really happens in the same times with the social media and Instagram and everything so connecting people was the word of these times mm -hmm. you know and still today I still have this connection with people for sure the community gets bigger and bigger every day but as I always feel that I need to keep that that original you know crew and actually my friends haven't changed I still have the same friends for the last 20 years actually you can see on me in my in my Instagram if you if you go back a few years ago you can see friends growing up kids arriving in the family and and vacation and all that stuff that just you know I don't mm -hmm. want to play the fashion designer mm -hmm. I don't want to invent a life that that I don't live, you know. Mm -hmm. My life is very simple in a way. I'm very lucky. I, I have like fantastic experiences and I have fantastic opportunities to meet great people, to do amazing things and, and travel and everything. But the idea of my of my day is very like going to work, having a nice lunch with friends, joining my boyfriend by night, going to the cinema. So I think the danger in fashion sometimes is just to try to... Yeah, to, you, get, to, you can get caught up in all of it, right? Yes. And yeah. as I say always, and this is something I really fight, uh, not every day because this is easy still for me to do it, but to get a bourgeois, you know? I think l'embourgeoisement, I don't know the word, there is no word. L'embourgeoisement, what does that mean? That means you start to, you know, to get 
to get money. You start to want to have like a nice oh, flat. Right. So it's like this kind of like once you start to make money, you kind of lose connection. Exactly. With exactly. Yeah. I don't have materialistic, you know, issues. I don't want to. I don't need to have like a big flat. I don't need to have like, you know, amazing pictures on my walls. I don't need to buy. You're happy the... with the simple life. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. And I can and I can play with lots of things. I can be on a boat with friends and the day after going for a camping weekend with other friends. Yeah. It, it's okay for me. I don't need to to, to put my, my costume of fashion designer. People yeah. expect this yeah. sometimes, but it's okay for me to just work on collections, trying to make the most simple and authentic and trying to tell the story through the shows, through the pictures we're doing, about like a community of people who stay who they are, you know? Yeah. It's so interesting because it completely relates to this brand that you're talking about, which is like not outrageously expensive, which is like accessible to people. But I'm also curious from a production and manufacturing standpoint, like how do you create, how did you find the way of creating products that were beautifully designed and high quality, but that were also affordable? Like how do you, how, and how do you do that? Price point was the key of the success. Of course, this is a balance. There is a, an equation, an equation, I don't know if this work, works in English, but it was a good product, good quality, like very good quality, but a good price. And the price point, I, I was at the really beginning of AMI, contacted factories in France, trying to, in Milan or in Italy, and it was like completely out of the Impossible. world. Impossible. Yeah. Then I knew some factories from my Givenchy um, period, and I called them and I said, I'm going to build a brand and I need your help. Do you want to produce me? And everybody say yes. So this is the same factories of Givenchy, actually. In Italy or in, in, in France? In Portugal, ah, in Europe. Okay. In Portugal, it's amazing. People, okay. first of all, are super nice. Yeah. They are very professional. Yeah. The factories are great, and they know how to cut and to do, to do you know, clothes. And it's like two hours from Paris. Yeah. And it's very good price, yeah. you know? So, and I felt honest about, you know, producing my clothes in Europe. Okay, I would prefer to, to, to do it in France. But if I was doing in France, I became like a luxurious brand again. And I became a designer. Yeah, and and I couldn't, couldn't say what I... Yeah, work, yeah. I wanted to have a shirt at 135 euros. I wanted to have a, a pair of jeans at 155. I wanted to have a jacket at 380, 40, 420. You know what I mean? I was looking all the brands around and I said, if I want to succeed, and I was like deeply convinced about that, and you know how it works the market. The first people you meet is buyers. Yeah. Buyers come to the showroom, they look at the collection, and the first thing they ask is the price. So tell me about the first meeting with the buyers. When you first you came up with this new proposition. Exactly. The contemporary market is not yet developed very much in Europe. You know, how did you how did you position the collection with buyers and what was the reaction? First collection, January 2011, in a little bar in Paris. I invited guys just to stand up, you know, close to the bar, having drinks. And actually, it was funny because press came because I was working with KCD and they invite people and people came and they were looking for, they asked, where are the models? And actually, the models were there, you know? <laughs> and it was funny because I didn't thought about that, actually. I haven't thought about that. It was so, they were, everybody looked the same in a way. There was not fashion in the side. And it was real life. It was real life, you yeah. know. And I said, "This is uh, the model." Say, "Oh my God, I thought it was the clients of the bar." So, yeah. 
And from that day, I remember I was saying, okay, this is the way I want to make it happen. I was, I always want to make, sometimes I, I went maybe a little bit higher or like a little bit like, you know, farer, but I want to keep it real. You know, this is the key and the strength of, of I mean, the strength of this collection that people can relate, relate and connect easily. It's not like fashion models. It's not like fashion. It has to be real. The guys on the catwalk can go out the catwalk and go to the street and you can say, oh. And they won't look like cartoon characters. Exactly. Yeah. And um, first appointment, Mr. Porter, Corso Como, Le Bon Marché, yeah, three, four, like, and they came. This is, uh, and Barney's, and of Barney's. course, Barney's. Yeah. It was crazy. The first day. So the, the show was on Wednesday. Thursday morning, the four of them came to the showroom and they all buy. Wow. It so was like. Were you expecting that? Of, of course not. Okay. And and what do you think what it was that resonated? Because Corso Como, Barney's, Mr. Mr. They're Porter, all very bon different. They're, one they is all French, say this one is, is what, British, one is American, exactly, you one, know, is, one Italian. is Italian. And they all say this is exactly what we expecting for a long time. Right. It's it's masculine, it's classical, but with a twist. It's the right balance between casual and classic. It was... Everything seemed uh, actually lucky me, huh? but it was like it was okay for everyone. And it was a good price. And it was a good, and the price was they say, oh my god, okay. So they all make the exclusivity, Mr. Porter exclusivity, Barney's exclusivity for the US, Corso Como, and Le Bon Marché in Paris. Yeah. And we did half a million euros the first season. Wow. And then how did you fund that? Because to like get all of those clothes produced. Did you have that much capital to get all of the, the financing? The first collection cost me 20,000 euros. But then to produce it, you had good relationships the, with the factory? The factory. And, and they paid a deposit. And they, they paid all the deposits, 30%. Which is a really important part of when you're launching your and business. And this is the advice I give to everyone who starts in the business. Yeah. Money could be like a trouble, like very, very easily and very quickly. Yeah. You have to, I always say, I have a friend actually who's launching his business and he's telling me, no, you know, I'm not going to sell a lot the first year. I say, you have to prepare your success. Because if you start saying that's not going to work, of course, you won't need money. But you're going to need money. Why? Because that's going to be successful. Sure. It's like a plant. You need to put water every day on it. Yeah. If you don't put water in a plant, it, it dies, you yeah. know. And, and actually, fashion costs a lot of money because you have the shows, you have the, the production, you have the, the company, the press, the everything. It costs a lot of money. So you have to prepare yourself to the success. That's so. such good advice. Okay. So from that first season, the business <laughs> started to grow really fast. Can you talk about it, what it was like after that? Like what happened? It was like a, it was like a dream and I was organized because again, I was 30 years old. Yeah. I had the experience of 10 years working for big houses. So I wanted to build my company only because I was ready to it. I was ready to have like a PR, a sales team, a, a product manager, an office, a showroom. So I really was ready to, to make it happen. Right. It was not just, you know, I try and I see. No, no, I wanted to make it happen. So everything was kind of, you know, organized to be ready to produce, be ready to deliver, ready to be ready to invoice, yeah. be ready to, to talk to people, to, to make, you know, interviews and everything. So, and it was like this, yes, first first year we, we reached like the first million euros of, of, of turnover. And then mm -hmm. I can't, uh, yeah, it, it growed, it growed like yeah. every, every year since seven years. 
The other thing I talk to young designers, and a lot of them then they ask me, they go, how do I find a business partner? And I know Nicolas quite well, and <laughs> he's become a friend, but just the idea of finding someone that you can work with has also been very, very key to your success. You know, it's been a big part, the partnership between you and Nicolas. How did you, how did you find him, first of all? And second of all, how did you know he was the right person to work with? Because, you know, so many designers, they meet lots of people. Mm. But they ask me, like, how do I know if it's the right partner for me? Mm. For everything, actually, I'm very intuitive. Mm -hmm. And I think we are all kind of very intuitive. But in this industry, intuition is key. Like, you know, you have to really trust yourself. You have to feel, and I always say, you have to feel very confident with yourself. Of course, you can be like, you know, crossed by depths and everything, but you want to go there. You have your, your, you know, your goals and everything. And for sure, life can be very surprising. And actually, I've been lucky enough from the really beginning because I think I get this energy to federate around me, people who really want to, to help and to be part of the project. So actually, I met Nicola through a friend um, nearly five years ago. He was... Um, finishing um, his job at the Couples at this time. He was because he's part of the team at the beginning of the Couples, and he was ending it. And he was trying to to see what he could do. And he went to Le Printemps, which is like a department store in Paris, and he discovered Ami, and he liked it very much. So he tried to make a connection with me was not really hard actually because he find the right people to, to make the connection and we met and it was like it was him like I didn't expect to have like a CEO at this time because I felt okay with myself with my team but he was arriving at the perfect moment and we started to work together he invested a bit of money um, he was really part of it and he helped me to organize everything, even if I was very organized at the beginning. But when he came, he put, you know, a strategy because daily I was really, you know, yeah. trying the best to make, you know. Because you were doing, you were overseeing the business and the creative yes, side. Yes, I was doing accounting in the morning. I was seeing my banks in the afternoon. I was doing a creative meeting with my little team at this time, which is like an intern. Yeah. And I was going for production. I was going for, yeah. I was doing everything for sure. Right. It's important to do everything. I think it's really important because even now that we are nearly 80 people in the company, because I know all the jobs, I did everything from the beginning. Yeah. I respect everyone for yeah. sure. And it's a team thing. You can't do anything by yourself. Yeah. And you know that better yeah. than me. You know, it's like you have a vision of something, but yeah. you need people around you to Absolutely. To help, to but help it you does, as you say, it really does help. If you can understand what all the jobs are, even as the company grows, you know what it takes to do every single exactly. job. So exactly. I completely relate to that, even, even with my own experience in BOF. You know, like in the early days, I used to like upload all the stories and deal with the you know, developers. And so you kind of understand all of the parts. Mm -hmm. So when Nicola joined and he helped to bring the strategy and a bit of investment, what did you guys, what was the strategy that you guys came up with then? Because then you were <coughs> ready to take it global, right? Like you, you were going to open stores. And exactly. You, you know. And actually, I, I, uh, the first year, because I knew that from the first season, that if I didn't have clients, you know, because most of the, the collections people introduce don't have a, a, a direct response. And I had like a direct response. 
But I was already into retail thing. I really wanted to have my stores. I was really into architecture. I wanted to, to make it this actually story need, needed like a store, like, you know, an envelope. And uh, I did like a pop-up store in Paris the first season. And people came, like a lot of people actually, Parisian friends and, and lots of, of guys. And, and really, really quickly, I wanted to open a store. So actually, we opened the first store in Paris. And actually, Nicolas was not there at this, this time. Mm -hmm. We opened the first store in December 2012. Actually, the 12th, 12th, 12th. And then we opened a second store Uh, in Paris, then we have six stores today. In uh, Paris, uh, three in Paris, one in London, one in Tokyo, and one in Hong Kong. Okay. And why did you choose those cities? Like, why those cities for, and those for the stores? This is funny because today, when I think about all this, it's all about meetings and and opportunities. I didn't choose to come to London, really. You know, so when we st were starting to think about London, for example, Nicola was like um, talking with landlords and 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 then we had like an opportunity to Duke Street. I remember he called me. He said, you know what? I think I find the store for for London. And I said, really? He said, yes. He sent pictures and I said, can we do it? He said, okay, let's try to make it happen. Right. So and you're really opportunistic about yes, things. Yes. I don't want to plan too much. But this is the way I, I do too in my life. Huh? For example, I don't even know what I'm going to do this summer. You know what I mean? I right. like I like the idea of sometimes being... Because fashion is so about, you know, growing business, making a plan, having a strategy, double your turnover. But I still feel a bit disconnected about this mm -hmm. till today. I like the idea of growing. I like the idea of, you know creating things around the world and opening a beautiful store somewhere but it has to look natural it has to i don't want to force anything okay i can fight a lot for things when i believe in something but i don't want to i think i take my time because and even if we have been lucky enough to make it you know happen in a very short time but i like the idea now to okay it's just, this is a story of my life you know mm -hmm. I should be there in 40, 50 years. You know, I can imagine like very easily myself as uh, Ralph Lauren or Paul Smith or George Albany, you know. Mm -hmm. So, but I like the idea of not just being a fashion, uh, a buzzy or trendy thing. I want to build on time, you know. So if you go too far, too fast, you can, you can lose your, your, your soul, your creativity and the happiness to, to do this job. I feel like very happy every morning coming to the studio because we're having a lot of fun. Okay, we know that we are not the high fashion, the best. It's okay, we're doing our best to make it happen. I think we dress people all around the world. I was in the train this morning, I saw someone with the, the, the sneakers. When I arrived in the street there, I saw someone with a jacket. The And girl, Emma, Emma from my there. team. Exactly, she's wearing like a jumpsuit. That, that, that's yeah. a good thing, this is the best thing. And you can meet fantastic people, you can have great interviews, you can, you can have like, beautiful features in the magazine, but for me the most important thing is to please a client. Mm -hmm. To think that everybody, every, every day, sorry, there is a customer coming in a store spending his money, you know, because this is kind of, it's an investment. Clothes mm -hmm. cost a lot of money, even if we try to make it affordable. affordable. 
spending 600 or 700 euros for a coat, it's a lot of money. So I have this, you know, conscious. Mm -hmm. So I respect that more than anything else. So Alexandre, if you were um, going to give some advice, and you've already shared some very important lessons, but like what's the, what's the most important thing that a young designer should know for, for building their business and, and taking it global? Like it sounds like you've had the drive from a very young age to be creative. And it sounds like you also learned through your experience at some of these big houses how to take that drive and that creativity and structure it and organize it and to come up with a commercial proposition. What drives you to keep going? Like how do you how do you keep the same energy and the same commitment every day? First of all, I will say that I feel that I have a responsibility because I have a team and even if I feel, and I feel very comfortable with it, it doesn't put stress or pressure on my, on my shoulders. I wake up every morning and I don't say, oh my God, I have 80 people to, you know. It's, it's really about, we are a team. They all came to me to help me and to create things together. So I'm really grateful about that. Um, I don't try to, to take it too seriously. I think this is a challenge because everybody wants you to, to make it very serious. But I'm, I'm very playful, you know. I like to play. I'm very joyful. I'm very optimistic. And naturally, I, I, I'm, I love to laugh. I love to talk. I love to, to spend time with my teams and everyone to, to just enjoy, you know. And I always say to them, actually, if this had to, had to stop at the moment for, for a reason or another, because you never know. We have to feel very grateful that the, we had the chance to, to live this experience. This is an amazing experience to be an entrepreneur, to build like a company, to express yourself, because I'm free today, actually. This is the, the, the best thing ever, you know. I wake up in the morning and I can say it will be red or yellow. And I will be, if we can be short or long, or we can say this is going to be this music for the show and this is going to be this way in the store and we can do this video. And it's like the way to just express very naturally and to keep it natural. What excites me again and I hope for, for years now is like just to, yeah, to see that the best is to come, you know. So it sounds like, you know, earlier we talked about how you're not a competitive person, but it sounds like you're competitive with yourself. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. I want to be a better person. I want to be nice. I want to be good with my family. I want to be here for my friends. I want to be a good lover. I want to, mm -hmm. to, to take care of myself because it's very important. You know, it's like, because from the moment you're good with you, you can be good with everyone else. You know what I mean? Yeah. Don't lose your your objective never never lose from you know from where you are because there is going to be like a lots of distraction away around all the time so keep your kind of if you have a goal you know for me the only goal actually i can i can tell you a little story a few years ago 10 years ago i was doing an interview for balenciaga to be a designer there to join the team and um Someone asked me, what's your goal in life? After like tons of interviews, maybe I did five or six interviews. 
And I said, like very like spontaneously, I said, I want to be happy. And they look at me, say, sorry. And I said, I want to be happy, happy, happiness. Like this is my goal, like to wake up every morning and to say, cool, this is, this is, I'm happy, you know. And someone answered to me, we are not here to be happy. Hmm. And I said, okay, so this is not for me. Because if doing that job to design things in a beautiful house in Paris and all the blah, blah, blah around, if this doesn't give you happiness, why do it? Why do, you know? Well, I can't wait to see what happens next as well. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for taking the Thank time much to, to come to London and to chat with me. It's been, it's been really nice to hear your story. And there's certainly a certain very special drive within you. I think that's a big part of, of your success is just knowing what you're driving for, knowing what that goal is. So st stick to it. <laughs> for sure. All right. I will. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. See you soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe to hear more episodes and give us a rating and email us at podcast at businessoffashion.com with any questions or guest suggestions. To learn more about BOF, click on the description notes in this episode. If you've enjoyed this conversation, you might also be interested in BOF Professional, our global membership community, which keeps you up to date with everything you need to know about the global fashion industry. For a limited time only, we are offering our BOF podcast listeners an exclusive 25% discount on an annual BOF professional membership. So to get 25% off your first year of a BOF professional membership, click on the link in the episode notes, select the annual package, and enter the special discount code PODCAST2018 at checkout. Have you ever owned something that inspired you to up your game? For me, I got a chef-grade range recently, and now I'm cooking new things every single night. Seriously, no cuisine is off limits. The point is, when we own exceptional things, they inspire us to do exceptional things. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. I can picture myself with a car full of groceries, cruising down the highway, soaking up the sun with the available dynamic sky panorama glass roof. Ah, pure bliss. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.